You're listening to ABS in Mind, a bi-weekly podcast bringing you the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. This is ABS in Mind, and I'm your host, Diana Asajan. Today's episode will be somewhat different from what you've seen before. The majority of our ABS crew was in Las Vegas this week at the Structured Finance Association Conference. And while we were all covering all different respective beats, we all had one common question. What's going on with the market? The stock fell off on Monday and Tuesday, driven by the coronavirus concerns, made that question all the more interesting. Today, we have Larissa Patton, who covers esoteric assets, Albert Yoon, our associate editor and our MBS reporter, as well as Joan Weiland, managing editor at Deadwire ABS. So it's been a decade since the last downturn, and it feels like for the past couple of years, everyone is counting down the innings. But for the most part, investors are still buying, and spreads are still seeming pretty tight for many asset classes. Yeah. Well, we this came about because we were having a conversation after the first day, and like Deanna said, you know, investors are always searching for yield, and it's you know brought spreads in very tight. And we kind of wanted to know when is enough enough or when are investors going to st- step back and what's going to be the catalyst for that. So we kind of just tried to work that into all of our conversations while we were at the conference. Um, I would say, aside from the number one response I got from everybody, which is what is everybody else telling you, um, three mm-hmm. things stuck out to me. Um, Deanna, it may have overlapped with, uh, we had some meetings together, so it may have overlapped with some of the things that you heard, but first was investors or issuers, I should say, sorry, diversifying their funding channels so they're not as reliant on the capital markets and securitization in case that channel shuts down, they can maintain other sources of funding. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting, particularly, like I said, Deanna, for your sector, because, you know, marketplace lending has been very um, fintech focused and um, focused on the tech. And uh, they're supposedly bringing in more credit focused people or at least, you know, looking at bringing in people that have been through a downturn uh, that come from different sectors that are not focused on the technology. I don't know if this is something you heard as well. It just seems kind of the opposite of what we saw about five to six years ago when the sector was growing. Mm No, that's absolutely right. And if before they were all technology folks, you know, software people, engineers, et cetera, now you're seeing much more old school finance, you know, chief risk officers um, come into those teams because everybody is definitely preparing um, at least to be defensive, not to say that anybody is saying when the downturn will hit exactly, but everybody is at least preparing to be defensive. And, you know, speaking of um, sectors overlapping, um, Larissa, there was a panel um, on the consumer ABS, and anecdotally, I heard that they were talking about both subprime auto and um, the kind of marketplace lending, uh, online lending, kind of tangibly saying that those are two assets that are not considered as on the run anymore because we saw them becoming, you know, much more liquid, much more tradable in the past couple of years. But, you know, investors are predicting that that's not going to be the same um, going forward. And they pointed at, you know, the rise of revolving structures in the auto ABS, which was um, funny to me because just this week, Avant, uh, one of the personal loan lenders came out with their first revolving deal, which for them, yes, it's a diverse funding, uh, diversifying funding sources. It's a more committed capital for a longer time period because this particular year had had 24 months um, revolving uh, term. 
But for investors, it means that they're committing to this platform, which serves near-prime consumers for the next two years. It's not as long of a period as probably some of your auto deals are, but it's still kind of a commitment that, you know, you're trusting this platform for the coming two years. I also found it interesting to, you know, talk to people about diversifying funding uh, uh, for their their deals because, uh, you know, we don't know what the market sentiment will be later this year. In fact, uh, you know, the, the odds are now or greater that the sentiment will be weakening uh, at some point and uh, people are preparing for that. Uh, certainly uh, right now everybody, you know, calls – in the RMBS, RMBS market anyway, and probably other markets, you know, great execution, right? And so they're all, you know, issuing as much as they can. It's a great time to be an issuer. Um, yet mm-hmm. uh, they are diversifying and they're not forgetting a uh, little hiccup that we had in repo funding last year as well, which is uh, it's an important source of funding too. So, um, yeah. anyway, if I may continue, I mean, this yeah. sort of, uh, you know, leads into, uh, you know, overall just uh, discussion sentiments about surrounding mortgage markets, mortgage credit markets. And uh, I like the, like you guys, I mean, you know, a lot of uh, investors and issuers sort of, uh, you know, talking up the good times. And, uh, well, nobody said this, nobody said this, but I sort of, you know, dawned on me yesterday after coming back from the conference that I think there was almost like a feeling of dread in the market a, a little bit. Um, not that it was selling off, but uh, dread that everything is wound so tight, as one analyst said. And, uh, you know, basically there's nowhere to go but wider. Um, and uh, people sort of just wondering what that uh, trigger will be, whether that's uh, economists coming out and downgrading GDP because of, uh, you know, what, what's happening with coronavirus or, or, or something else, or you know, there's always the election that's thrown out there as well. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, you know, cautiously optimistic, I feel like, is a phrase that gets thrown out around a lot. What else are they going to say? I don't think mm-hmm. anyone wants to come out and say, you know, they're preparing for, you know, a recession, a downturn. Nobody wants to say those words. Um, but I definitely feel like the coronavirus was more of a threat than it was even just going into the conference. You know, Sunday, it wasn't a big deal. And all of a sudden, Monday, it was, you know, something that a lot of sectors are going to have to pay more attention to. And oh, right, right. Like when that. the markets were selling off mon- exactly. on Monday and we were there, mm-hmm. I mean, it was really hard to get somebody to say, like, oh, this is really yeah. bad, you mm-hmm. know, because, I mean, if it's just, a, you know, a spike down and then back up in recovery. But, I mean, look, it's Thursday and things still look pretty ugly out there. Mm-hmm. And... um and in resi markets, I mean, it's starting to manifest itself. I mean, I checked on a couple of uh, uh, credit risk sharing uh, deals today. And, um, you know, Fannie's uh, first deal of the year, uh, the mezzanine piece, the 1M2s, are, looks like they're bid about uh, 5 to 10 basis points wider at about uh, LIBOR plus 200 right now than they were last Friday before the conference and before this uh, market downturn started. And uh, but the riskiest piece, uh, the one B ones, they're out by about twenty basis points to LIBOR plus three thirty uh, versus uh, uh, three ten on Friday. Um, and in a quick email exchange with uh, with an investor this morning, basically it's like you know this is uh, doesn't not to say that things are trading there, but they're certainly bid you know bid wider by by the dealer community uh, for for good for good reason. Um, and the upside for these guys, you know, they're always trying to put a positive spin on things. If you own a lot of it, is that uh, well, at least we're outperforming high yield, and uh, certainly junk right. bond markets are uh, are um, 
you know, reeling along with uh, stocks right now. It's interesting. interesting. I, I also heard that, uh, that you know, following on your comments, Al, about, um, you know, the great execution, you know, while that lasts, people are going to, I heard a lot of comments that, you know, people are going to be, we're, we're going to have a much heavier first half of issuance than second half because people are basically going to rush their deals to the market while the execution is good. But, you know, if we're already seeing widening for the same reasons that, you know, the, the equity markets are, uh, are falling, you know, I, I wonder how long that lasts, you know, what's the tipping point, um, or does it, you know, make people rush even faster to market now? Yeah, to that's, try to get out before things really turn bad. This is that, that that's a good right, theme for us, yeah, to go on. Sorry, Deanna. No, sorry, I was going to say that's right, and especially I think it's a little dangerous, especially for like sectors like marketplace lending because they're short term. And one investor was saying, you know, if you just look at spreads, primary or secondary, you'll think, all right, well, these things are trading tight, so everything is fine. Let me buy more of it. But in reality, it's just investors parking in um, short term assets right now. So um, for this asset class, uh, um, investors were saying that they'll keep buying only because it's short, not because they don't think there's a downturn coming or anything else, but because they're just parking here for safety. And I think another interesting asset class in those terms is student loans, because I think, you know, I know Larissa, myself and John are following the sector, but that's one of the asset classes that everyone is kind of bearish on because there are so many issues that are aside from the overall economy that's happening, for instance, LIBOR transition issues. And I know, John, you've been following this issue overall, too, so if you had any comments around that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of my time at the conference was spent, um, you know, in panels and talking to people about uh, two, two big things that uh, SFA is working on. One is the LIBOR transition, and one is ESG investing. Um, you know, in terms of the LIBOR transition, and I've, I've been following this for a couple of years, years now, um, you know, pe pe people make this, the, the kind of uh, standard comments on panels, um, you know, admonishing people to take it seriously and, you know, get working on it. And uh, uh, that, that hasn't changed much. But what's kind of escalating in terms of people's concerns is litigation, litigation risk, um, you know, will I get sued? And And, you know, that's almost kind of a uh, a no-brainer question. Yes, the question is more: Who is going to sue me, and you know, how how many times am I going to get sued um, for you know whatever it is I do? Um, and you know, that seems to be kind of contributing to some of the paralysis uh, in terms of you know adding fallback language and, and taking specific actions to to uh, uh, move away from LIBOR. It's uh, you know these concerns are, are fueling a push for a legislative solution to the the problem of legacy contracts that can't easily be changed. Um, and so there's a lot of talk about a New York bill that uh, the industry is pushing. Um, the the idea is that that bill would become model legislation that other states could use. Of course, a lot of security, a lot of securitization contracts are are uh, 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 set up to use New York law, but not all of them. Um, but you know, this is uh, you know the, the LIBOR supposedly goes away at the end of next year, and there are doubts that you know the law can be passed in time. Um, if it is passed, any 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 kind of laws that are passed to you know essentially redefine you know what what contracts are supposed to look at as 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 LIBOR are going to face constitutional challenges. There's a lot of talk about the different types of uh, of specific constitutional challenges that could be raised, and I'm not going to get into all into those there. But um, um, to to some, that's seen as a better solution, you know, to have a a constitutional lawsuit, a single constitutional lawsuit, than you know, a whole bunch of different suits from, you know, every investor 
um, against every issuer um, for every different kind of nuanced way that the the issuer or the trustee um, you know attempted to deal with the issue. So. Uh, um, so let so you know, lit, lit, litigation is unavoidable. A, sorry, litigation is unavoidable. Unavoidable. Then you said. It sounds that way, yeah. So the question is how to minimize the amount and define the type of litigation. Uh, litigation, I guess, by uh, putting in some sort of a uh, legal, you know, some, some some sort of legislation that would kind of uh, um, direct contracts to look at some other something other than LIBOR and consider that to be LIBOR. Of course, that raises, as I said, a bunch of different uh, additional issues. Um, so, you know, it's a fluid situation and interesting, um, you know, something I'll, I'll certainly be following going forward. Um, and, and, of course, the other thing, and this is kind of a growing thing that, uh, you know, people are talking about and SFA is uh, taking a more active uh, interest in, and that's ESG investing, which which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. Um, you know, this is something, as I said, people are taking very seriously. They're dedicating teams and resources and money uh, to this. You know, I, I sat through a couple panels where there were, you know, multiple big name companies, which each, you know, are talking about all the things that they're doing on it. Um, the problem is there's not, not a lot of consensus on exactly what it is, how to do it, and whether it works. Um, and how to measure it. Even. You know, well, yeah, and, and I'll get into that in a minute. I mean, I, I wanted to get, lay out a few examples of, you know, you know, people here ESG. What 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 the heck is that? Um, you know, people talk about, you know, there there are some obvious kind of existing things that you know could be considered ESG. Things like, say, a Tesla ABS, electric vehicle ABS, Pace Solar, um, um, or a CMBS backed by you know, green certified CRE, something like that. That that seems kind of obvious. Then, then there are less obvious types of things that were mentioned. One, one I, I thought this was, was kind of interesting would be kind of a, a subprime loan securitization where the APRs are, you know, capped at 10% instead of, you know, like 35% or, you know, whatever they are now. Um, another example, so, somebody raised this, uh, 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 an example of an Italian energy company that uh, produces mostly dirty energy now, but, uh, under the terms of a bond they issued, agreed to move to 55% clean energy production within the life of the bond or face rate step-ups. Um, that was another example of kind of how an ESG bond could be set up. Um, but, you know, a lot of people talked about this, and, and you raised, you, you know, the, the um, measurement or, or, or standards kind of question. How do you know it's ESG? And, and you know, people say, like, issuers will say, yes, this is an ESG bond. And then, you know, the, the buyer will say, well, you know, can, do you have any verification of that? And the answer is no. Well, can we look at your data and verify it? And the answer is no. So, um, you know, that that's a problem if you can't, you know, determine, if you can't agree on what a definition is. Um, also, you know, people talked talked about, you know, clients saying they want it, they want ESG, but they can't really define it. And they can't really say exactly what it is they're looking for. They just want, you know, ESG. So um, there's a lot of talk and a lot of calls for some kind of sort of standardized criteria and, uh, and standardized reporting by companies so that you can, you know, kind of start getting to a place where you can compare, um, you know, what, di what different uh, uh, people do and what's in their deals. Um, one big, uh, another big impediment to this happening is cost. You know, there are costs to doing this, and the companies that have dedicated teams of money to it talked about. You know, we're we're investing money into this, and um, you know, nobody's quite sure what the what the payoff is going to be. Um, but you know, so, some some 
issuers or in, in investors, when they're presented with these costs, you know, decline to proceed because they don't want to jeopardize their returns. And you know, there was talk at the conference about there's sufficient liquidity outside of ESG in the market right now. That there's no real incentive to do it other than the, other than the fact that you know some people say that they want to do it. Um, so there, there was a, somebody on a panel said, you know, it may take a downturn or some some volatility to to really give a, a ESG traction to really kind of take off. John, one of the um, things that I'd heard about ESG, and I was talking with a, an investor at a very large investment firm, um, that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the a lot of the uh, demands for ESG uh, investments are coming from uh, European funds. And uh, there's a lot of money uh, flowing uh, to the U.S. from there because of uh, negative rates in Europe. Um, and uh, right. in that case, if you're a money manager and, you know, that's, uh, you know, a huge chunk of your AUM, I mean, you're going to listen to them. Um, and so that struck me. Yeah, and, yeah, and, you and have what, no choice, and, really. And that, that's the thing. People, people want to do it. So that's why everybody's kind of scrambling to find out a way to do it. But. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's, it's a big difference. I mean, I covered mutual funds and in the start of SRI, socially responsible investing, back in back in the '90s, and I felt at the time that that was uh, that was kind of amounting to just kind of like a feel good thing. Well, so, yeah. and but this is this is going well beyond that. I think, I think ESG. ESG, yeah. it's an issue that comes up a lot in some of my sectors. John, you had mentioned pace and renewable energy. It's something that's you know, Toyota's issued green bonds, and so you know, it's. It's something that people are paying attention to, and I don't want to sound cynical about it, but I was talking to somebody who runs a fund that you know has been very focused on this for a while now, and they said it's great that people are setting up mandates, and it gr- it's great that people are saying that they're interested in it, but at the end of the day, it still comes down to returns. The, you know, They'll have people saying, like, okay, right, we have to right. do this, or we want to do it, but if we're not going to make money, then why do we do it? And I think the 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 difference with Europe is they have mandates where they have to invest a certain amount, and we don't really have that here. But um, you know, there's there's no answer to well, it. Me, but uh, we'll see. Let I me guess. share this. To, let me share share this statistic with you. Though somebody on one of the panels threw out that uh, 2019 ESG fund inflows were 20.6 billion versus 5 billion the previous year. There's definitely money going into this. It's just you know. How's it going to get done? I think is the big question. And to add on, whether, whether, whether it's easy to be said. I mean, when I first heard about it, I was like, why would people care about you know? I don't these you know the institutional money managers really you know care about this? But it's really their clients, the people whose money they're managing, are putting these right. mandates in. Sorry, Dan, you, you wanted know, to. It goes beyond. There is all there. I mean, there's talk beyond just the kind of like you know environmental type of stuff. You know, there are. People who want to know the makeup of, you know, the gender makeup and 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 minority makeup of boards, um, of company boards. Um, so okay. you know, there's a lot of different kind of ways this is manifesting itself, and well, that's um, I don't think it's going to go away. I think I think it's going to, you know, that's interesting. Uh, you um, know, because I also pay attention to pension funds, and there's actually a, it seems to be more of a focus on diversity and women-led. Uh, institutions that those are kind of yeah. I don't want to say get priority, but you know get mentioned a lot more when when these pension funds are looking to invest in funds. Right, and that's the S and the ESG. So, <laughs> right, and it's it's funny because um, one of my uh, one of the investors I spoke to, he also had a little bit of a cynical view on this ESG, and he said that they want to invest in it, and they also deal with a lot of fintech companies, and uh, he mentioned that some of them might be starting to use it as a marketing ploy more, more than anything, you know, 
representing no, themselves to be ESG. I mean, and he brought an example of a couple of uh, platforms. One was small business, and one was personal loans. And he was saying the personal loan one is has APRs as high as any payday loan, but they present themselves as serving, you know, same file borrowers. So they um, consider themselves to be ESG. So yes, being cynical is easy. Yeah. Well, that gets into the you know what the 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 one guy on the panel said that you know the people claim they're yes this is ESG well you know how can can you provide any verification of that no <laughs> will you let us verify it no <laughs> so right um how, you know how do you how do you know, other than just being able to say that you're ESG it's like claiming your milk is organic <laughs> well. That's uh, all very interesting. Um, quick, I guess, fire round for everyone. I'm curious to know what you guys think next year at this SFA event. Are we going to be um, still bearish, still okay, or what's going to happen next time? What's going to be the sentiment next time? I think uh, in in the mortgage markets, it's all it's going to be uh, you know a lot about uh, protecting your downside. I mean, I don't think it'll be as bullish, um, and uh, it's uh, you know somewhat of a bold call because, I mean, again, everybody is sort of, you know, talking up, you know, how great the fundamentals are in the housing market and whatnot. And they, they are, there's like shortage of supply, home prices are still rising nationally, not everywhere, but nationally. And, uh, but, uh, you know, somebody, a source I respect, you know, his macro opinions very much is like, you know, well, you know, things, things turn, you know, in terms of uh, GDP, housing, mortgages are not immune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the conversation has always been around when are we going to go into the downside of the cycle? Um, you know, maybe we're closer than we have been before. It's something that's always mentioned and asked and, you know, everyone's always very optimistic. But it does, like Al said, I don't want to say dreadful, but it did feel a little more cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I mean, people have been calling this downturn for several years now, so it's kind of hard to say, yes, this will it will happen this year. Um it seems that it's going to have to happen at some point, I guess. But Right. Yeah, I think um, for my sector, so I'll agree with Al, there's going to be a lot of defensive um, stuff happening, which in my case, it means M&A, a lot of banks buying the platforms that are on their own right now, and then a lot of larger platforms buying smaller ones, so they won't be that, as many players. Um, or That's what investors think, you know, in the coming years. But um, I think that's uh, all the time we have today. I think uh, this was a good roundup of what we heard at the SFA. I thank you, um, that Larry Bates crew, for being here today. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon. 